This morning I want to speak to you about redeemed relationships. If Jesus Christ is supreme in your life, he not only has redeemed you, the individual, but he's also redeemed all of your relationships. Every relationship you're in is seen differently because of your belief in the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today we continue our nine-part sermon series as we walk through the letter of Colossians. The sermon series is simply entitled Supremacy in Christ. I ask you to take your Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 3. I want to read verses 18 to chapter 4, verse 1. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence, the public reading of God's holy word. Colossians chapter 3 I'll begin at verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, for there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. If you were with us last Sunday, you heard me say that belief and behavior are inextricably tied together. What we say we believe ought to be reflected by how we behave. And how we behave ought to be shaped by what we believe. Paul spent the first two chapters speaking of our belief in the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Then beginning in chapter 3, he draws out some behavioral implications based on that belief. The first 17 verses of chapter 3 focus on you as the individual because you believe in the supremacy of Jesus Christ. You routinely set your hearts and minds on things above. This is not something you do once. It's something that you do on a repetitive, regular basis. You continue to set your heart and set your mind on things above. Now, the way you do that is by putting to death your earthly nature and being robed in the righteousness of Christ. So we said last week that that metaphor of putting to, putting to death is a violent term. It means to slaughter, to slay, to mortify, to kill. We are to slaughter those grave clothes and we are to put on the grace clothes of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you get to verse 18, Paul the Apostle expands the influence of the supremacy of Christ in your life. It not only affects you, but it influences and affects every relationship. So in verses 18 and 19, he speaks to wives and husbands. 20 and 21, he speaks to children and their parents. Verses 22 following into chapter 4, verse 1, he speaks the relationship between a slave and his master. We'll talk about that, but I want you to reference it and Put it in the context, if we brought it in today, of the workplace relationship between employee and employer. In other words, what Paul is saying is that every relationship is changed because of your belief in the supremacy of Christ. He begins with the most intimate of relationships, husband and wife. 
He then begins to move out from that intimate relationship to the parental relationship. And then he goes outside of the household into the marketplace. So that if you are redeemed, not only are you redeemed as an individual, but you're redeemed in all of your relationships because belief and behavior are inextricably tied together. So if we say we believe in the supremacy of Christ, it must affect how we interact in all of our relationships. So this passage breaks out nicely into three sections. So in good Baptist preacher fashion, there will be three points to this sermon. It will not conclude with a poem, but you might suspect it just might conclude with the quotation of a hymn. So when we get done with that hymn, you'll know that we're probably almost done. So for the first point, here we go. Since we believe in the supremacy of Christ, it leads to merciful marriages. Since we believe in the supremacy of Christ, it leads to merciful marriages. The little girl was only five years old. She had just watched the Disney classic movie Cinderella. She wanted to test her grandmother's understanding and knowledge of that story. The grandmother said to her granddaughter, I know what happens in the end. And with open-eyed anticipation, the granddaughter wanted to check the veracity of her grandmother, and she simply said, what happens? And the grandmother said with full confidence, they lived happily ever after. And the five-year-old granddaughter said, no, they didn't live happily ever after. They just got married. (laughs) Now, the innocent comment of that five-year-old is a reality for many marriages in the church and outside the church. It's not that we live happily ever after. We just get married. Friend, if you believe in the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ, it will affect your marriage so that you can say we lived happily ever after. Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. For Paul to identify the wife is a radical statement. The commands that he gives in these few verses, they would fly in the face of the Roman culture, and they fly in the face of our culture as well. But for Paul to begin by saying a a wife has a responsibility, that that a wife has something to do, uh, that, that she is not just a thing, but she's a person, is a significant statement. William Barclay said in a Roman culture and context, A wife was regarded as a thing. She was just nothing more than a possession. Oftentimes, she was forced to live in seclusion. And she existed only to do the bidding of her husband. Now, elsewhere in Roman culture, it was also believed uh, that a a woman, not just a wife, but a woman, uh, could not own property by herself. And... uh, Her testimony was not valid in the court of law. Why? Because she was a woman. If you stop and think about the gospel story, it really turns everything on its ear, doesn't it? For do you remember the first people to take note that the tomb was empty? Women. 
Women went to the tomb early on Sunday morning, the first day of the week. They wondered who was going to roll away the stone for them. And they discovered that the angel had come, rolled away the stone. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Just as he said, those ladies went back, told the disciples. They gave a testimony that the tomb is empty, and the disciples actually believed them. They ran to verify what was told to them, and sure enough, they discovered the tomb is empty, and Jesus is alive. Isn't it amazing, our God? God is so great, so massive, so merciful. He tells that great good news, first and foremost, to women. Women are not a thing. They are a person. A woman is not just a thing. She's not just a possession. She has intrinsic value in the sight of God. So for Paul to say wives, he is automatically right from the chute declaring that this wife has value. She is stamped with the imago Dei, the very image of God. That same image that stamps the man is the same image that stamps the woman. Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. That word submit, it's a military term. It means to arrange oneself under. It is the idea of relinquishing of rights. We would say to, to lay down the rights card. A woman, a wife, is to submit to her husband for its fitting to the Lord. This is a consistent message throughout the New Testament. Paul speaks of it elsewhere in Ephesians. Peter speaks of it in 1 Peter chapter 3, just to name a few places. But this idea, this notion that a wife is to submit, that she is to arrange herself under her husband, it flies in the face of every culture. It goes all the way back to our first parents in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember when Adam and Eve fell and the Lord came and disciplined them? To the man he said, I will uh, make it so that by the sweat of your brow you will toil and labor, you will eat your food until you return to the dust. And then to Eve, he says, I will increase your pain and childbearing. And all the mamas say, thanks a lot. And your desire will be for your husband. We've mentioned before that word desire has nothing to do with sexual desire. It's a desire to usurp the role and responsibility of the husband. There's always a temptation for the wife to usurp that role. Uh, wives, if, if you've ever uh, had those uh, temptations, had those feelings, had those moments when you just really, you know, you wanted to rule the roost and call the shots and tell everybody what to do and where to go and how to get there and, and really put in line your doofus of a husband, then you begin to understand the temptation of usurping the role of your husband. I need to be upfront and I need to be clear. Uh, you do realize that I believe the Bible preaches and teaches complementarianism. Complementarianism just says that there are distinct roles and responsibilities in the marital union between a husband and a wife. That the husband is to be the godly leader of the home. He's the spiritual leader of the home. And the wife is to submit to the godly guidance of her husband. The opposite of complementarianism is egalitarianism. Egalitarianism says there are no roles, there are no rules, there are no regulations, there are no responsibilities. Anybody and everybody, husband and wife, they can equally do everything. I think the Bible is abundantly clear that by God's design, 
Marriage is between a man and a woman, a biological man, biological woman for life, and he gives different roles and responsibilities. Here, Paul reminds the church that the wife is not a thing, she's a person. But the wife is to submit to the godly guidance of her husband, for this is fitting to the Lord. While this may fly in the face of some of your understanding, let me also uh, make this observation that I think is noteworthy that all of us need to see right there in the text. Paul is telling every wife, you are not your husband's child. You are not your husband's slave or servant. You say, Pastor, where do you get that? Well, I think that Paul is definitely saying uh, that Submission and obedience are not synonyms. All you have to do is look at the words, look at the text. He tells the wife to submit in verse 18. He will tell children in verse 20 to obey their parents in everything. He will tell the slave, uh, the employee, in verse 22 to obey the master, the employer, in verse 22. So if Paul was saying that submission and obedience is equivalent, he would have used the same word. He either would have said submission in verse 18, submission in verse 20, and submission in verse 22, or he would have said obey in verse 18, obey in verse 20, and obey in verse 22. To the person who wants to resist that and say, no, preacher, I don't agree with that because he's just being, uh, uh, he's just having some variety. I want to use the Greek word hogwash because Paul is not interested in variety. He's interested in clarity. He's already used the word obey obey twice in the relationship between the parents to their children and the uh, slave to their master. So if he wanted to communicate that submission just meant obedience, he would have said it. I've said before and I'll say it again. Husbands, if you have to tell your wife you're the head of the household, you ain't the head of the household. And if you tell your wife, woman, do this. Whatever the this may be, you are not being biblical in God's design for marriage. There is a word, it's called submission. It does have meaning, it's a military term. It does mean to arrange oneself under. But husbands, you do not treat your wife as if she's your child. You do not treat your wife as if she's an employee who works for you. There's a different responsibility. There's a different relationship. Listen, parents, you tell your children what to do, don't you? You expect them to do it. You tell your 10-year-old son, clean up the room. If he doesn't clean up the room, there are ramifications, right? If you are in the workplace and you are a supervisor and other people are working for you, and if you walk out and you tell your assistant, I need you to send that email to all the shareholders, and that assistant looks at you and says, no, I'm not going to do it. There will be ramifications, right? It's a different relationship. Paul is saying that the wife is not the child of the husband. The wife is not the slave of the husband. She is a person of equal value and worth. She is to be submissive. Don't misunderstand that. But it's not equivalent with sheer 
unbridled obedience, you do whatever I tell you to do. Ladies, wives, it is possible to have submission and equality simultaneously. The role model for the wife is Jesus Christ. Jesus equal with God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. For I'm the Father, our one. Equality. Co-eternal, co-existent. But Jesus was submissive to the Father. He prayed in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. So there is this idea that the wife is equal to her husband in personhood, in the imago Dei, in the importance, in the eyes of God. There is that equality. But there is also this command of Scripture that wives submit to their husband. It is a relinquishing of rights. It is the arranging of yourself under the direction of your husband. It is resisting the temptation to usurp his role and responsibility as a spiritual leader of the home. Now, when Paul speaks of this in the New Testament, he always couches the submission of the wife to what? The love of the husband. Does he not? He always says, wives, submit to your husbands. In our case, it's fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh to them. Elsewhere he says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So the guardrails for the husband is love. If the husband, since the husband, believes in the supremacy of Christ, he understands that his role and responsibility is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. To love his wife and not to be harsh to her. Now the word love is agape love. It's the word that Paul uses. It's the word he uses routinely. That the love the husband is to have for his wife is mirrored by the love that God has for us. It is unending. It is undeserved. It is unmerited. It is a love with no strings attached. A husband does not love his wife for what he gets from his wife. A husband does not withhold something from his wife because she did not do what he told her to do. No, no. Love with no strings attached. Love that is unending, unmerited, undeserved. Husbands, let me ask you, do you remember that time, that season, when your love for your wife, it was really more defined and described by eros? Eros is the Greek word for romantic love. It's a sensual love. It's that love of, of just that intimacy, that, that romance. You husbands are looking at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. My hope and prayer is that you have eros love in your marriage all the years of your life. But eros love won't take you home. Eros love won't take you the distance. Husbands, do you recall, do you remember when that eros love, it was accompanied by phileo love. Phileo, it's the love that communicates the deep care and compassion and concern. It's not just that you love your wife because of the sensual romance. No, you love her just because you love her. You love her just because you have a deep care and a deep concern for her. 
Eros will get you some places. Phileo will get you a little bit further down the road. But if you want to take it home, if you want to go the distance throughout the years, husbands, we've got to learn that agape love. It's a love like God has for us. It's not to the detriment or the abortion of eros and phileo. No, we still have eros love. We still have phileo love. But over all of it is that agape love. It is God's love. That's the guardrails for us. As husbands, we are to love our wives. And Paul says, do not be harsh with them. Oh, that word harsh, it really means uh, make them bitter. Don't treat your wife in such a way that uh, over the years she'll become bitter towards you. Have you ever met a bitter old woman? Yeah, I have too. You ever met a bitter middle-aged woman? Yeah, I have too. You ever met a bitter young woman? Yeah, met her too. If you've ever met a, a bitter woman and that woman happens to be married, it could be that that's just her personality. I mean, she's just negative. She's just bitter Betty all the time, right? She's just bitter all the time. It could be her personality. It could be that partly it's the responsibility of her husband. Some of that bitterness of Betty is placed on the shoulders of her husband. Because he treated her harshly, she became bitter. See, what Paul is telling the church is that if Christ has redeemed you, that if, if, if you believe in the supremacy of Christ in your life, then it also redeems your marriage so that you have a merciful marriage. There's a second point. Uh, if you believe in the supremacy of Christ, it leads to productive parenting. That's verses 20 and 21. Children, obey your parents in everything. Fathers, do not exasperate or embitter your children, for they just might become discouraged. This command for children to obey, it's a requirement of action and attitude. Not just do the right thing, but do it with the right attitude. Parents, have you ever told your children what to do? And they do it, but they have a bad attitude in doing it. That doesn't happen to you? Never happened? Well, maybe. But you know what it is. To, they do the right thing, but they have a terrible attitude about it. Here, this word obedience, when it says for children to obey their parents, it means that you do the right action and you do it accompanied with the right attitude. Children, obey your parents in everything. In everything? In everything? Is there any qualification? Is there any restriction of everything? And I would tell you yes. If you have a parent who's telling the child to do something immoral, unethical, illegal, ungodly, 
by the grace of God, I pray the child doesn't do it. Just because Paul says do it in everything, he's not meaning everything under the sun. He's meaning everything that leads to godliness. Because a parent is not supposed to tell the child to do something that is ungodly, uh, criminal, unethical, and the child has to obey. No, you obey because your parents are godly people. And they're telling you what to do that will lead you unto godliness. Children, obey your parents in everything. Fathers, he says, do not exasperate, do not embitter your children. Embitter, exasperate means to stir up or provoke. This is the father who is constantly poking and prodding at the child. Always negative, always complaining, always poking at uh, the appearance or the weight or the grades or the posture or the athletic performance. How did you miss that ball? It came right to you. Why do you think you got to eat three pieces of cake? You don't have to have that much cake. You're getting fat. Stand up straight. Stop slouching. It's the father. It's the parent. It's just always poking. Now, there are times that the parent thinks this is making their skin thick. It's helping them. It's making them stronger. Because if it doesn't kill them, It'll make them stronger. The reality is, mom and dad, you are puncturing their esteem. Don't misunderstand me. I am not telling you to coddle your children. We do not live in child-centered homes. As Christians, we are to live in Christ-centered homes. Christ calls the shots, not the kids, not the children. Our love for the children is enormous, but they don't rule the roost. It is Christ who gives the direction, the spiritual leadership to the husband, and the husband implements that under the love, agape love, of God Almighty. So we are not children-centered. We are Christ-centered. So do not exasperate them. Do not stir them up. Do not provoke them. I want you to Understand that the greatest gift that a Christian mom and dad can give to their children is the promise that daddy loves mama and mama loves daddy and neither of us are going to run out on each other. The greatest promise you can instill as a gift to your children is that great confidence that my dad loves my mom. My mom loves my dad. And they're not going to leave each other. And they're not going to leave us. That's the greatest thing we can do for our kids. While I'm on that topic, let me just go one step further. Um, you do know, when you give your children direction, you are not stifling their creativity. When you tell Junior... Don't walk and talk and dress like a girl. You're not stifling the individuality of Sally when you say to Sally, don't walk and talk and dress and stand like a boy. You, you're not doing them a disservice 
In fact, you're doing them a great favor. Gender was not assigned to them at birth. Gender was given to them at the moment of conception by God Almighty. And God doesn't make any junk. He doesn't make any mistakes. He made them male and female. It's not up to those children to decide their sexual preference. They're five years old. They can't decide. Moms and dads, grandma and granddad, you are not stifling them when you lovingly correct them and tell them and celebrate the maleness of the boy and the femaleness of the girl because God made them male and female. And we have to celebrate that by God's design. You know, I've met some parents who say, you know, I, I just, uh, just got to trust Johnny because my Johnny wouldn't lie to me. And I want to say to every parent who believes that, that your child will never lie to you. You did not hear that from this pulpit. You did not read this from this Bible. The heart is a deceptive place. It's beyond all cure. I remember growing up in the Watkins household. I know that in the court system, it is innocent till proven guilty. My dad, the judge, did not follow that same ruling. It was guilty till proven innocent because he understood my heart. He knew what I was capable of. He knew what my older sister and my younger brother were capable of. I'm the best one of the bunch. But don't have any mom and dad who say, I've got to believe my seven-year-old boy. He would never lie to me. I've got to believe my 14-year-old daughter. She would never lie to me. Oh, yes, she would. Every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Because probably when you were their age, you did the very same thing. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Don't embitter them. For they will come, become discouraged. They'll become discouraged. Don't stir them up. Don't, don't provoke them to anger, for they will become discouraged. Discouraged in what? Discouraged in their faith in the Lord. It's not just a, don't discipline your children because it might make them sad. Don't, don't correct your children because they might get down. Don't, don't, ever, don't ever discipline your children. Don't ever put them on the right path because it, it just might make them upset. It might discourage them. The word does not mean keep your children from all forms of discouragement. What it does mean is don't discourage them in their faith. Now why would Paul specifically tell dad, fathers, do not exasperate your children? Why didn't he say it to moms as well? He said it to dad. Fathers, do not exasperate your children or you might discourage them. I know your text does not read in the faith, but that is implied. Why does he say that? I contend, and I think it's been proven over and over again, that a child's perception of the heavenly daddy is shaped by that child's perception of their earthly daddy. 
It's true in general for both mom and dad. But specifically, it's true in the case for the father. As dads, as men, as fathers, we carry a huge mantle of responsibility. Not only are we shaping the bitterness or lack thereof of our wives, but also the bitterness in the faith or lack thereof, discouragement in their walk with Christ of our children. Because if a child has an earthly dad that's absent, they'll believe that their heavenly daddy God will be absent. If a child had an earthly dad that ran out on them, that child will automatically assume there's coming a day when God will run out on me. If they had a dad on earth that was never pleased with them, they'll automatically assume that God Almighty will be never pleased with them. If they had a father that was always on them, always badgering them, They'll believe that God Almighty will always be on them and always badgering them. But the flip side is also true. If a child has a dad who's loving, it'll be easy for them to believe that God Almighty will be loving. If a child has a, has a dad who's always present, He's there in the house. He's there at the ball field. He's there at the recitals. He's there at the ballet. He's there. He's present. That child will automatically assume that God Almighty will always be there for them. If that child has a dad who believes in them, who forgives them when they make mistakes, it'll be a natural correlation for them to understand and believe that they have a heavenly dad who loves them. And when they make mistakes, will forgive them because he believes in them. Paul is saying, if you believe in the supremacy of Christ, it will lead to productive parenting. I told you there were three points, so here comes the third one. Since we believe in the supremacy of Christ... It leads to effective employment. It's the longest portion of the passage. Let me reread the words for you. It begins uh, there in verse 22. It concludes in chapter 4, verse 1. Slaves to masters. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when the eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong. And there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know you also have a master in heaven. I told you that Paul is dropping some amazing radical commands upon the church here in these few verses. I mean, it's amazing what he's saying. When you come to this passage, there probably ought to be an automatic friction in your spirit. You come to this passage and Paul speaks about slavery. What you want him to do is speak of the ills of slavery. You want him to do that because you come at this text with your American historical context. That in our culture, uh, 
the American experiment began with slavery. Slavery of a people based on the color of their skin. So you come to a text like this and you say, Paul, we want you to speak of the ills of slavery. Tell all those masters, let those slaves go. We do have to put it in context, though. Paul will uh, frequently call for freedom. Here in this context, he's speaking of relationships that I think are outside the home in the marketplace. This is why I think it's uh, appropriate for us to understand it as the employee and employer relationship. But let's be honest, in the first century, slavery was based not on the color of skin. Slavery was a class. It was the working class. It's estimated that in the days of Paul, in the writing of this book of Colossians, the Roman Empire was made up of 50% slaves. That's numerically about 60 million individuals. This is the backbone of the working economy in the Roman Empire. People in those days became slaves primarily for one of two reasons. Number one, being a prisoner of war. Number two, to repay a debt. Think about it. In the first century, there were no credit cards. So you assume a debt by going to a rich person Borrowing that money. If you can't pay it back, then you become indebted to that rich person. You become his servant, his slave. Now, don't get me wrong. Slavery in the first century was not like a 40-hour work week where they punched their clock and then went home, kicked back and drank sweet tea and watched their favorite sports on ESPN. No, it, it was ruthless. People were vicious. So please don't get the wrong understanding. But it was a different context than the American context of slavery in the beginning of the formation of our country. Now, Paul will speak about the urgency and the necessity, priority of freedom. In fact, when he writes Philemon, Philemon is one of those masters. The reason he writes Philemon is because Philemon had a runaway slave named Onesimus. Onesimus bumped into Paul. Paul shared with him the gospel. Onesimus became a believer. Paul instructed Onesimus, now go back to your master, confess your sin of running away and ask for your freedom. I'll write a letter to hopefully help you get your freedom. I believe that Philemon and Onesimus both were members at First Baptist Church Colossae. The reason I say that is because Onesimus is mentioned in chapter 4, verse 9. He's mentioned by name. So Paul has the history, he has the experience of, of, of telling masters to, to, to set their slaves free as frequently as possible. But in that, in that historical context of employee and employer, Paul says, listen, if you are a slave, if you're a bondservant, and if you believe in the supremacy of Christ, it affects the way you work. You work heartily as unto the Lord. It affects the way you see the boss man. Don't just work hard when the boss man's eye is on you. You're not working for him. You're working for Christ. And then Paul says, and you have an inheritance in heaven. There's no slave that thought he would ever have an inheritance. And Paul is telling those Christian servants, you will have an inheritance. The inheritance is the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be with him forever. And heaven is more glorious than anything you could experience on earth. 
He also says to the masters. That's the CEO. That's the uh, business owner. That's the boss man. He says to him, hey, master, you have people working for you. You're supervising other individuals. You do what's right. You do what's fair. There's no master in the midst that would have said, what? Are you kidding me? I'm not, I don't have to do what's right, do what's fair. Paul says, yes, you do. Because you believe in the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because you believe in that supremacy, it affects the way you treat your coworkers. It affects the way you treat those you supervise, those who work for you. Dare I say, those who work under you. It affects the way you treat other people in the marketplace. So you do what's right and you do what's fair. Why? Because you, master, have a master. And I don't care if you're the richest fat cat in Pelham. You treat people right and fair because you have a richer fat cat over you and his name is King Jesus. Because Jesus is sovereign and supreme. He's prominent and preeminent. And if we really believe that's who Jesus is, It affects our marriage so that it's merciful. It affects our parenting so that it is productive. It affects our employment so that it is effective. It affects every relationship that we have. So this morning, what Paul is doing, and what I'm urging you to do, is to examine every relationship that you have. Put the lens of the gospel upon every relationship. Husband, and wife, parent, and children, children to their parents. Every relationship you have in the marketplace, the workplace, whether you are the CEO boss man or boss woman, or whether you are an employee that works a part-time hourly wage. Because Paul says, all these people are in the church. And all these people, if they're in Christ, they're brothers and sisters in the faith family. So we treat each other the same way in church as out of church. We treat each other to the glory of God. Friend, can I ask you, do you have a relationship that's a hot mess? Do you have a relationship that is just really out of sorts? You have a relationship that is worrisome to you? It weighs heavily on your heart? You know that if it's not for the grace of God, it won't turn out well. You have a relationship like that? Maybe it's a relationship between a husband and a wife. Maybe it's a relationship with one of your children. Maybe it's a relationship with one of your parents. Maybe it's a relationship at work. If you have a relationship that needs to be redeemed, you came to the right place at the right day, at the right time. Because all you have to do is come and lay that relationship to the Lord. Give him that person, give him that problem, give him that predicament. Confess your sin, your wrongdoing, repent from that. Say, Lord, please give me the strength and the power to do the right thing, for I falter and fail far too many times. Help me, Lord Jesus, to glorify you, for I believe in the supremacy of Christ, and let it be revealed by all of my relationships. All to Jesus, I surrender.
And all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. And in his presence I'll daily live. So I surrender it all. All to him, my blessed Savior. I surrender it all. I gave you the three points. And that's the quotation of the hymn. So you know we're about done. So now it's your turn. Do you have a relationship that's out of line? Give it to Christ. The only way you can do that properly is if you have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that relationship with Christ dictates every other relationship. So if you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I call you unto Christ. If you are a believer, but you have a relationship that is not where it's supposed to be, I call you to surrender that to the Lord and his supremacy. We're going to sing a song. If you need to respond, you come. Ministers will be here. The altar's open for you to come and pray. Whatever the Lord asks you to do, you respond in obedience unto him. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for its truthfulness and its timeliness. Lord, help us today uh, to make paramount our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us also today to bring in line every relationship that we have in our lives. You have redeemed us as individuals. Now redeem all of our relationships by the power of the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen.